0: We are going to be going into a message today uh, that I am very eager to talk about. Uh, as you may know, I've mentioned last week and previous weeks that uh, I wanted to come back and address the issue of abortion and the sanctity of life. Uh, eight weeks ago, about eight weeks ago, uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned, and Christine and I came up and we gave a, a statement about you know, what, what we believe and, and what we believe the Bible teaches about this, this very controversial subject in our society now. And uh, basically, that, you know, God really values life in the womb, that life begins at conception and is precious and to be protected, um, but that also God is really for the woman and that we are to be a community and a church and a people that comes alongside especially mothers in crisis, that it is not an either-or, that it is the baby or the mother type of situation. It's not a, that false dichotomy, but the Bible teaches the care for um, all of life, a whole life perspective. And we didn't have time because we we're in missions month and a lot of different things were going on, but I've been wanting to come back to this topic and to look at what the Bible has to say about it, to go a little bit more in depth. There's so much to talk about here that there's no way that we can do it in in one sermon, but hopefully this will be helpful and and a a beginning to uh, at least, uh, you know, maybe something new, some information for you from the Bible that is helpful, maybe maybe convicting. So with that, let me just say that I I know that this is a very potentially sensitive subject for many people, uh, particularly for women, and and I understand that there may be, uh, you know, certain fears or or, or anxiety about this topic, and I think that can stem from many different things. I think one of the things that may come from is this fear or sense of losing um, rights or, or, or things that were very difficult to win and took time in society. Like, for example, women couldn't even vote until 100 years ago in America. Until 1919, universal suffrage came in. Um, Maybe some of you experience things in your daily life at work. You know, maybe you work in a field where uh, you experience discrimination. Maybe it's extremely male dominated and and this kind of a thing is something that you struggle with on a regular basis. It's very real for you. And the idea of potentially losing rights is a very very scary thing. Maybe some of you have have witnessed relationships in your life that were uh, between men and women uh, that were definitely not modeled after the scriptures that says that the husband is to love the wife as Christ laid down his life for the church. That's how husbands are to love their wives. But instead, maybe you witnessed abusive relationships that um, really have created a sense of fear or trepidation within you. Maybe... Uh, the, the horrific situations of rape or incest that we see, uh, you know, put on the, the news or the, the newspapers, creates a sense of fear. What about those situations? What about the situations where the mother's life is at risk? Does that mean that mothers don't matter? There are so many different thoughts and maybe many different thoughts that create different feelings within us, so I, I understand that this can be a very delicate situation. So um, hopefully, hopefully some of those things can be addressed today, and we can especially look into what the scriptures have to say about this topic. But can we begin uh, with prayer? Let's, let's pray together. Father, we come before you, Lord, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would be present in this place. Lord, we pray that your peace would rest upon this place, upon every heart, Upon every person, man and woman, in this room, outside, over Zoom, we pray for your Holy Spirit's presence and peace to be here. We pray also for your favor and your grace that we would be able to discern um, truth from your word and to be able to be taught and guided by the Holy Spirit, Lord God. Help us, Lord. There is so much um, vitriol. There is so much noise. There's so many antagonistic views and yelling and shouting out there in this world. Lord, we pray that we would be able to hear your voice this morning. I pray for my lips, that I would speak only things that are pleasing to you by your grace and anything that is not that would be removed from our ears and from our hearts. God, so we just pray for you to come and for you to minister to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, So the, the first question that I want to address. And I I think this is the biggest question here when it comes to the question of abortion, uh, the sanctity of life, things like that. The main question is this, when does life begin? And when I say life, I'm not talking about just cells, like, oh, the cells are alive or whatnot, but I'm talking about, about human life. When does human life begin? When is Humanity, when is personhood recognized within a, 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 a group of cells or, or whatever you want to call it? When does life begin? I, I think most of us can agree, if not all of us, that that is the central question when it comes to abortion and, and, and the sanctity of life and these types of issues. Now, I, I want to say that I'm taking it for granted that we all agree that once life has begun, once humanity and personhood has begun, it's sacred and to be protected. Now, I say that because that hasn't always been the case throughout history and around the world. There are cultures and civilizations, even the ancient Romans, who thought infanticide was okay at times. Babies that were born could be left, could be exposed out there in the wilderness or left to the wolves because they deemed it unhelpful for their family or society, they had other reasons, and they said th- those, those children are expendable. I am gonna operate, I'm gonna not go there, and I'm gonna operate under the assumption that we all assume that that is wrong, and that human life, once it has begun, it is sacred, it is to be valued, it is to be protected. So the question is, when does life begin? Now, does it begin at conception? Fertilization, uh, when the sperm enters into the egg and conception, fertilization takes place. Is that when life begins, or does it begin at birth, after the baby has been born and come out of the womb, made its exit from the mother, and and has come out? Is that when life begins, or is it somewhere in between, whether it's the after the first trimester or after the second trimester, or is it, uh, you know, when the when the heart starts beating, or when brain waves are detected, or when there's quickening, right? When the mother quickening means feeling the baby and the sensation. Is it is it with one of those other things? Where where does life begin? That's the question. Now, when we look at the scriptures, and and I want to go here to Genesis chapter one, verse twenty-seven when it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I think this is a really important place to start because this is the heart of it. This is the crux of it. Um, Human beings, people are valuable. Human life is sacred, why? Because God has made humans in his own image and he has made nothing else in his image in the way that he has made humans in his image. There are no other animals, no other created beings in this world that bear the image of God. And because of that, men and women are extremely precious and valuable. Now, when we sin against God, we have made ourselves worthless in our estrangement from God. But inherently, when he made us as humans, as people, we are valuable. We are sacred because we bear his image. And that is why we believe that life is sacred, because God has made us. Now, let's dive in a little bit here in Psalm 139. We're going to look at a few different passages today, each one emphasizing something a little bit different. David wrote this, this psalm. It says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. amazing thing about this passage is it highlights in very vivid language how God was actively a part of forming and creating David in the mother's womb, in his mother's womb. Not after he was born, but God was involved in knitting him together Forming him in the womb. Uh, In fact, that word there, when it says that you saw my unformed substance in Hebrew, that word is golem, which means embryo. There, God was a part of forming David before he was born. And, and, And the interesting thing here is when you look at the way that David refers to himself, when he uses the personal pronoun me. When he talks about, I am fearfully and wonderful made, my soul knows, my frame was not hidden from you. When he talks about these things, when you look at the Bible, there is no distinguishing of personhoods between when we were inside of the womb and when David is an adult after he has been born. There is this continuity of personhood assumed from the formation within the womb to David as an adult as he's writing this psalm. The Bible makes no distinction about this. God was forming the person of David. He was the one doing it from within his mother's womb. Psalm 51, David also writes this when he was talking about his own sinfulness, when he was thinking about how he slept with Bathsheba, a woman who was not his wife, and how he had his, her, his husband, her husband killed, Uriah. He says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, I think this is very poignant. This is very interesting because David here, Not only does he talk about the moment he was conceived, but he says that he was conceived in sin. He was brought forth in iniquity. What is he talking about here? He's talking about original sin that was transferred down from Adam all the way down through every generation. This is why Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and not of Joseph, in order for sin to not be transferred to him. But David, here, he assigns a moral status to, whether you want to call it a fetus, embryo, whatever you want to call it, zygote, David assigns moral status to that which was in the womb, to that which was conceived. Now, the point of this is this. It would be very strange. I think it would be very weird to assign moral status to a clump of cells or to a bunch of tissue. Moral status is assigned to morally moral beings. Beings with the possibility of morality, beings with souls, morality is assigned to humans, to those who have personhood. I think David makes it very clear that God is the one who has formed us. John Frame, author of Medical Ethics, a Christian, he's a Christian, he wrote, the personal continuity between David's fetal life and his adult life goes back as far as conception, and extends even to this ethical relation to God. David was a person and an ethical person at that, even from conception within his mother's womb. Now, I think this is really, really relevant to. Uh, the conversation, what's going on in society. Uh, you, you know, the slogan uh, nowadays of the pro-choice uh, group, uh, my body, my choice, right? And, and we we hear this espouse, it's kind of like the banner of the pro-abortion, pro-choice group, my body, my choice. Uh, as, as a woman, not, not me, but as a woman, I have um, sovereignty over my body. I should be able to have choice of what I do with my body and what happens with my body. And to that I say yes, yes, amen to almost everything in life, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. You can wear what you want. You can, you can eat what you want. I can, I can give you advice about what to eat, but you don't have to take it. You can eat what you want. You can wear what you want. You um, can be in a relationship with, you know, the guy that you want to be in a relationship, not the guy I tell you have to be. You know, like you can, there are so many things that you have choice over but when we take into account psalm 139 psalm 51 the issue the difference is the thing that changes is that it's not only one body in this situation but in the eyes of god it is two bodies at this point that that's the difference to say pro choice is really a misnomer from the biblical point of view because the baby certainly does not have a choice in this situation, in the pro-abortion, pro-choice camp. Um, The difference is that there are two bodies there. And we can see this even in, you know, the fact that babies have different DNA than their mothers. Um, It's a whole new, you know, we use DNA to establish identity, right? No two people have the same DNA unless you're you're identical twins, but we use it to establish different identity in this world. DNA, uh, the, the babies have different fingerprints. The babies uh, develop their own blood and can have a different blood type. These are different human beings. There are two bodies there. There are two people. One of them being a new life that is formed by God. Now, going on here in Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 5, Isaiah says this. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength." Now, here in this passage, not only do we see once again this language of God is the one who forms in the womb. He formed Isaiah within the womb, but God also forms us. He formed Isaiah. He forms us for a purpose as well. God creates us for a purpose. Look, he says, God formed me from the womb to be his servant. That's why God made me, to be his servant. He has a special calling upon my life to go and bring Israel back, to call them to repent, to be a prophet for him. God made Isaiah, he formed them from the womb with a purpose in mind. Now that is is really significant and meaningful. God did not just make us to leave us into randomness of life or for no purpose, but God made us with a purpose. And, and I think this is really, really relevant because every one of us in Christ has purpose in this life, no matter how we came into this world. You know, there, there are some people who say, well, what about, uh, you know, babies? What about babies in the womb that have uh, medical conditions, that are unhealthy? This baby may have a very poor quality of life. Why would I want to bring a baby into the world like that? Well, um, you know, Let's consider this person here. You may know him. I don't know if you do. His name is uh, Nick Vucicic. He, is, uh, he was born without limbs. No arms, no legs. There's a, a little kind of like stubby uh, foot type thing at the bottom of his, his, uh, at the, his thigh area. But he was born without limbs. His uh, parents did not know that this was gonna happen and they gave birth to him, I don't know what they would have done if they had known that this child was forming without limbs. Certainly there are many people who may look at him in this situation and say, that's, that's a baby that should not be born. That is a baby that would be better off being aborted. What kind of quality of life, what kind of life would this baby have? Nick vucic certainly had incredible struggles that I cannot even imagine in his life, but he became a Christian. And today, Nick Vucisic is an evangelist. He goes around the world sharing his story of redemption and of how God saved him. And God is using him powerfully to bring many people to Christ. And I, and I love this, that he said, he said this. He said, I found the purpose of my existence and also the purpose of my circumstance. There's a purpose for why you're in the fire. If God can use a man without arms and legs to be his hands and feet then he will certainly use any willing heart. Certainly, many children come into this world or would come into this world um, with, with disabilities, with handicaps, some of them incredibly severe. But the question is this, who gets to determine that this child's quality of life is not worth having? That this child should not get to live his or her life? Who gets to determine that? I believe that we do not get to determine that. That is something that is in the hands of God. This is a picture of Nick and his wife and his children. And who, who, who are we, who is anyone to say to him that your life, that many people I'm confident would have ended in pregnancy, was not worth living? This is the story of redemption. This is the story of Certainly many people are born into this world with brokenness. We all are in different ways. All of us will physically die one day because sin has affected not just our souls but our bodies as well. We all come into this world with issues in different ways. Some of us much more extreme but God can use anybody. Anybody. That is the story of redemption. God forms us like he did Isaiah, like he did Nick with a purpose in our lives if we would give our lives to him. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, short passage here, says this. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now this is, um, this is just amazing when we think about what God is saying here. He says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now we're going to a whole nother level here. In in Psalm 139, David is saying, God formed me in the womb. God knew me. Isaiah is saying, God didn't just make me. He made me for a purpose in this life, in this world. Now Jeremiah is like, I'm going to up all y'all. He says, God didn't just make me and make me with a purpose, but he knew me before he even formed me. In other words, before I was even conceived, before I was made at the very earliest stages of conception, I existed in the mind of God. He knew for all eternity or however time worked, before time even existed in God, before anything there, anything existed, he knew me, that there would be a time where he was going to make me for a purpose in this world. it it zooms us out from life beginning at conception and then being born and then living life in this world to something that stretches back to before I even formed you in the womb, I knew you. Brothers and sisters, the Bible presumes a continuity of personhood in God. It presumes that God is the one working and creating and he had a plan from before eternity for every child that is to be born in this world and that is a sacred, precious, wonderful thing and something that we should not come and interrupt. Now, I think this is such a different view this continuity of personhood in the mind of God and then in the womb and then to be born into this world, it is so much more uh, continuous and holistic than simply the, the, the common uh, argument out there nowadays about viability, right? That, that's that's the, one of the big arguments. Oh, life begins when life is viable, when that fetus is taken out of the womb and can live and can survive, that is when life begins. Now, there are so many issues with that line of reasoning, Uh, not least of which is that the point of viability has moved several weeks earlier now due to advancements in medical technology. So does that mean human life now has begun earlier than it used to back in the day before they had that equipment? Um, Viability is a is a poor measure. If you really think about this philosophically, a newborn baby is not viable, not without his or her parents, can't survive without help. Uh, A man in the hospital on a ventilator is not viable without that ventilator. He counts on something else, a machine, a ventilator to keep him alive. If he did not have that ventilator, he would not be viable, but he is certainly still a human being. Many people in this world rely upon medicine and medical equipment in order to be quote-unquote viable, but they are not any less human. Why is viability the point when life begins? I think uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, she was the first um, woman Supreme Court justice in United States history. She hit the nail on the head when she was discussing Roe v. Wade. She was writing about Roe v. Wade a few years after it was initially passed. She said this, The difficulty with this analysis about viability is clear. Potential life is no less potential in the first weeks of pregnancy than it is at viability or afterwards. The choice of viability as the point at which the state interest in potential life becomes compelling is no less arbitrary than choosing any point before viability or any point afterward. Accordingly, I believe that the state's interest in protecting potential human life exists throughout the pregnancy. Now, I I think she hits the nail right on the head there. Why viability? Why why that measure that has shifted over time? What does that mean? Um, it's, It's so, at the heart of it, arbitrary. Why not when the potential for life is there, when human development has begun? And she argues that that's when she thinks the state should be involved in protecting human life. In other words, from conception, when human development begins. Now, that's not just her opinion, but when we go to the scriptures, I believe that that is what the Bible teaches. So it is not just opinion against opinion, but scripture. God, his timeline, what he is doing is not viability, but he has had a plan from before the creation of the world for every human being. You know, if we were to think about this too and do a thought experiment on this, wouldn't it be strange, like, you know, if we thought about the question, when did I become human? If we're looking for a point in the spectrum. Did I become human after I came out of my mother's womb? So was I not human two minutes earlier when I was still inside the womb? Did I become human after I exited the womb? If so, at, at what point in the birth canal did I become human? Was it like at a certain right in the midpoint of the birth canal and then I crossed it and I became human? What if, what about C-sections? Am I not human when I'm still inside until they take me out of it? When the doctor sees me, I'm still not human? Am I, am I human starting in the third trimester so in my second trimester, then at a certain point, I hit a certain second and I become human and I have personhood, but I didn't before that. Is it when, or my brain waves start, my heart starts beating? I think, you know, at least for me, when I think about this line of reasoning, I don't, I could see the arbitrary nature of it. And, and I don't think this is the line of thinking that, um, that makes sense. And certainly not what the scriptures teach. Brothers and sisters, this is such a, an incredible view of humanity. So far above and more beautiful than the nihilist philosophies that say that there's no purpose in life. We are just a clump of cells that somehow manage to survive. There's no real purpose, many atheists say. The Bible says, no, we have incredible purpose from before we were even created. Now, I, I, I um, I do want to say you know, uh, in cases of of the difficult, the horrendous cases of rape and of incest that I could not imagine experiencing, um, rape, let alone becoming pregnant through rape, it's an it's an unbelievably difficult circumstance. It is a tragedy. Is it a horrific thing that I would never? No one should ever wish upon anyone. But when I look at the Scriptures, what I, what I cannot help but feel and conclude is that just as the mother, as the woman, is a victim in this situation, the child is a victim as well. The baby is a co-victim. The baby coming into the world in this way is a victim as well, along with the mother. And to to kill the child is to um, add, add tragedy upon tragedy. I was reading in the, uh, the Journal of Obstetric, Gynecologic, and Neonatal Nursing, not that I normally do that, but for the purposes of, of this um, message, I was reading about a case in which uh, they were doing a case study on a woman who was raped and became pregnant through rape. And this woman who they, uh, you know, they didn't reveal her name, they just called her um, uh, MR by her initials. And it says that she considered multiple things. She considered abortion, aborting the baby that was within her because of rape. But she says because she considered it a living thing, she, she couldn't do it, so she didn't. So she decided to carry the baby to term. She considered giving the baby up for adoption, which is Man, if a woman carried a baby to term in that situation and gave it up for adoption, that would still be a heroic, incredible thing. For her, she thought, maybe I'll give the baby up for adoption. And when she gave birth, she actually did run out of the hospital. She, she fled the hospital. She abandoned the baby um, because of what she was going through, understandably, emotionally at that time. But later, she came back, and she wanted custody of the baby And she says the reason is this, quote, she said this, this is her reasoning, quote, once we saw he wasn't a monster, I couldn't give him up, end quote. And, you know, as as unbelievably nightmarish as that scenario is for this woman, I think that she saw something that is very true, that the child was not the monster. The monster is the man who raped her. He's a monster, but the child like her was a victim of that monster as well. And it's an incredibly difficult situation, but I do believe that the baby is a victim as well and and worth protecting. Also, in cases where um, therapeutic abortions, as they're so called, which is when the life of the mother is at stake, I, I believe that in that situation, it is you know, um, at times the life of the mother may be saved. At times the life of the baby may be saved. It depends on the situations, but the goal there is not to take life. The goal is to save life. And sometimes in that instance, maybe the mother's life is the one that needs to be saved. And that is understandable. But because of the sanctity of life, some mothers will heroically even put their own lives on the line to try to save the baby. Why do they do that? Not because it's a clump of tissue or cells, but because the mothers believe that that is a life, that that is their child, and they will heroically even put their lives on the line. But in these situations, sometimes we save the baby, sometimes we save the mother. The point is that we are trying to save life, not to take life. Brothers and sisters, um, being pregnant and giving birth is an incredible blessing from God. The psalmist says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. But in our society it almost feels like giving birth, pregnancy has become a curse. It has become a curse. It is not a curse. It is a blessing from God. A The pain of childbirth is a curse. That we see in Genesis 3. Now when we work the field, when the Bible says men go out and work the field, it's hard. It doesn't just create fruit or vegetables for you anymore. There are thorns and thistles. You have to work hard. That was a part of the curse of us sinning against God. It says for women, childbirth will now be a painful thing. The pain was the curse, but not the children themselves, not pregnancy itself. That is a reward from God. That is a heritage from the Lord. Children are a blessing from the Lord, as the word of God says. Let me go into here a few applications at this time. And then we'll we'll round things out here. Because I do want to make this practical as well. First, pray for the unborn, for their mothers and fathers, for the doctors and nurses, and for our nation. Ultimately, we need to pray that people see that which is within the womb as sacred, as worth protecting because they're made in the image of God. Volunteer at a crisis pregnancy support ministry. You know, um, there is there is this line or this kind of a uh, message being propagated in the news uh, by Democrats on the left that says, oh, the Republicans on the right, you know, they want to take away the right to abortion, but they don't care about mothers. They don't care about helping people in crisis situations. Now, I don't know about Republicans. I don't know people on the right. I don't care about that. But I know that Christians, Christians, genuine Christians are amongst the people who are most active in helping mothers um, families in crisis situations with pregnancies. You know, right around us here, there's a, a clinic called Real Options. They have five locations in the Bay Area that offer services for women in crisis. Um, they come alongside them. They, 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 they give them advice and guidance and screenings, and they have support services. They, they also have support services for women who've had abortions. They have, they have retreats and stuff like this. They have all sorts of different things. I was on a call with them, on a video call, just asking them, you know, after Roe v. Wade was overturned about what they do. And I'll tell you, the majority of people who work there are Christians who love life. They love caring for women. They love caring for the unborn. I mean, I was looking at their board of directors page. They have a chairman of prayer. Like These are people who are doing this because they love God. They love women. They love um, the unborn. Consider getting involved in one of these places. They told me that they need volunteers for so many different things. And I'm exploring right now more ways that our church can be involved with potential places like this. Consider adoption. There are so many, um, it, it, maybe if more women knew that they, if they carried their child to term and they kept their baby, even if they did not keep the baby themselves, that there are families there that can provide their children with a home, consider adoption. Again, Christians are amongst some of the most active people in this area. You know, Holt uh, International, is one of, it's a Christian adoption agency. It's one of the largest adoption agencies that is so active in looking to place these children in need of a home with families that can care for them and love them. They're very, very active. And maybe adoption is something that you're considering or would pray about. I know there are those who have adopted and have been adopted in our church. Uh, talk to them about their experience as well. Advocate for the unborn with gentleness, compassion, and conviction. Uh, Speak up. Speak up about the sanctity of life. Uh, It's an unpopular message in a place like the Bay Area. But do so with humility, with gentleness, but with conviction. Standing up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Read. Again, I can only cover so much today. There's so much more that can be talked about, but read, um, learn more about this topic. Two books that I read that were helpful in even this message today were Abortion by R.C. Sproul. Uh, That is actually free online on Amazon or Kindle. You can download it for free. Uh, Medical Ethics by John M. Frame from Christian Perspectives. Deep Dives into Abortion as well. I would recommend these resources if you want to learn more. And lastly, um, repentance and forgiveness. Now, I, I want to say that, you know, maybe some of us here in this room have had an abortion, or maybe you are the man and you um, encouraged the woman to get an abortion. You know, I just want to first say clearly that abortion is not the unforgivable sin. It is not the unforgivable sin blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The unforgivable sin really is rejecting Jesus. That's really what it is. Nobody can be forgiven. No one can enter into uh, eternal life if you don't believe in Jesus. If you reject him, that's the unforgivable sin. It's as simple as that. Uh, Abortion is not the unforgivable sin. As John wrote, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful There's no sin that God will not forgive. But we do need to come and and repent and ask for forgiveness in order to experience that cleansing from God. And when we do, we can know and and acclaim with Romans 8.1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Jesus came and died upon the cross for every sin that we could ever commit. There is nothing that we cannot bring to him, including abortion, but it's important for us to come and to, to get right with God in bringing this to him. Now, let me close with this. When we look at Matthew chapter one, you know, I think it's really astonishing That Jesus was the the ultimate unwanted pregnancy. That's how he came into this world. Uh, His father didn't want him, he was going to leave Mary. And it took an angel to come and tell him, Joseph, don't leave. That's from God. That's how Jesus entered this world, as an unwanted pregnancy. Jesus was the ultimate illegitimate child. You know, some commentators say that when the Pharisees said to him, we were not born of sexual morality; we have one father, even God, that they were making a dig at him. You were were born out of wedlock. We don't know who your father is. He was the ultimate illegitimate child, so to speak. This is how our God chose to enter into this world. And the Bible says that he scorned the shame, he scorned the shame of the cross, dying the death of a thief of a criminal and he did not consider the shame of entering into this world as an unwanted pregnancy considered an illegitimate child. He did not let that stop him from coming into this world to save us. That's how Jesus entered this world. And my hope, my prayer is that as we as a church come alongside every woman, every family that has a child, maybe even born in tragic, horrific circumstances, that as we come alongside any family like that that is willing, that is able, that has courageous, heroic faith. To bear that child, that every mother would be able to say, like Mary did My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. My prayer is that every woman, every family in that situation, as they carry that child, as they step out in courageous and heroic faith, will be able to look back and say, truly, God has blessed me. Truly, this child was a blessing. Truly, God had a plan from before the beginning of time for this child. And as this child was born in this difficult way, He can look to his Savior who was unwanted, who was considered illegitimate, yet he scorned that shame because he came with a purpose for us. That's my prayer, that every person in our church, every woman, I mean, we don't know how to do this. We have to learn. We have to grow in this. But that that would be, we would be a community and a family that can see God bring light out of darkness and restoration and redemption out of such brokenness and tragedy that every woman would say, God has called me blessed. I am blessed because of this child. Let's pray together.